and I'm the pastor down in Suffolk. We've got the campus in Newport News that's been there for a decade plus. That campus in Suffolk is still a baby. It just got planted in January, but it, that's where I pastor. But it's so cool every Saturday at 5 o'clock to know that there's three services in three different locations that are happening at the same time reaching people, and there's people worshiping God all over this region. And we share sermon series. So Stranger Things, how many guys enjoyed that series here? Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. So we all did that together at all three campuses. We've all been a part of this race and politics series at all three campuses, and there's live teaching, live sermons at each campus, so you can podcast all of them at citylifeva.com. But race and politics has been one of the most timely and impactful series we've done at City Life. I would say since I became a pastor here, but it hasn't been very long. But I would argue one of the most impactful series we've ever done at series at City Life. Because when you look at race and politics, there are two places where we see people most entrenched and polarized and split in our culture. And when I say racism, when I say liberal, when I say privilege, when I say conservative, or black lives and blue lives matter, then we throw walls up and we retreat to our corners. And that's just human instinct. To retreat to our corners where people think like us, maybe look like us, where we're comfortable. And then we might become tolerant of other people with different perspectives and life experiences. But God calls us to live in deep relationship with people and get rid of the division and step into unity. But so often we step into peacekeeping rather than peacemaking. And it's a small but huge difference. And it's important because in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, hey, blessed are the peacemakers for they'll be children of God. But peacekeepers, they'll they'll see the elephant in the room and kind of wink at each other and walk around it because they like the absence of tension. But peacemakers, they're called to attack the elephant in the room and wrestle with it and grapple with it and do work. You know, peacekeepers love what Martin Luther King defined as negative peace, which is the absence of tension. But God seeks positive peace, peace, which is the presence of justice, reconciliation, and unity. And you know, those that love this absence of tension, they'll come up to a pastor in a series like Race and Politics, which we've been in for a long time now, and they'll say, should you really be speaking on that because it's divisive? But really it's the opposite. It shines light on division in the church that we need to bring unity to. And and unity isn't some sideline issue, it's an essential issue to the faith. You look at verses like uh, Ephesians 2.16 and John 17.21, But even first, you look at a verse like 1 Peter 3.9, and you realize that unity is essential to either God's blessing or him removing that blessing. You look at 1 Peter 3.7, it talks to husbands. It says, hey, if you're not living in unity with your wife and loving your wife the way I've called you to, then don't even bother praying because you put a ceiling on your prayer life. Read it for yourself. It's in 1 Peter 3.7. But in the bride of Christ, his church, unity is the same essential non-negotiable issue. Again, in Ephesians 2.16, it says, Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And a hostility toward each other was put to death. And then unity was Jesus' prayer before he went to the cross in John 17.21. He said, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. This prayer of Jesus is directly tied to our witness. If his name is going to be made great and we're going to reveal the glory of God to our country and our culture, we must have unity. And the end game of reconciliation isn't just 
to hug it out and, and to cry it out and say we've been reconciled. But it's so that we can have a greater ministry and impact and witness to our world. It's only going to happen when we have unity. Unity is a big deal. That's why we've been in this series. Because, again, the two places we see the most disunity is with race and politics. And in Suffolk, we've spent weeks and we've spent weeks looking at specific implications and solutions for both race and politics. But the solution, both and all have this in common, to find unity under the blood and cross of Jesus Christ. And you could spend all tonight and you could spend weeks on just this idea that unity isn't uniformity. It's people of all kinds of backgrounds chasing one common purpose. And God's word lays out that purpose. So I want to dig into that tonight. But before I even go any further, I just want to pray again that God would just bless this time in his word. Lord God, I just pray for every person, every heart here. Lord God, again, as we prayed after worship, I pray that you would uh, challenge, convict, Lord God, encourage, and just draw us forward and lead us on the path of everlasting life, Lord God. We thank you again that you have a ministry and a calling and a purpose for this campus here in Williamsburg. And I pray that through unity, God, we would have an increased witness, ministry, and impact that only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of your Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. So last week... You might have watched it on Thanksgiving Day. The Cowboys played the Redskins, right? That's a pretty big rivalry. Terrence is dropping uh, trash talk in the announcement videos for weeks now. I hope you guys give him a ribbing for that. Otherwise, I'm going to have to start texting him. But it's a huge rivalry. You know, the, the viewership of the NFL has been dropping and nosediving, but 35 million people watched that game on Thursday, more than anybody had ever watched an NFL game. So it's a big rivalry, and around here it's hard to imagine a bigger one but there's a rivalry in the NFL between the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears that is historic. They've played almost 200 times against each other. It's what many would call the NFL's greatest rivalry. And it's a big rivalry in my family because on my dad's side of the family, they all came from upper Wisconsin, right? So they were all Green Bay Packers fans, but then a couple generations ago, they moved some of them down to the south side of Chicago. So then there was a large number of Bears fans, and, and that rivalry, because there was a common bloodline, it stayed friendly. And, and my grandmother's house where we would visit, it was kind of like Sweden. It was neutral territory. You knew because you opened up the cabinets and she had pint glasses that were both Packers and Bears. I still have some in memory of her. But you know, Steph and I, we went to a playoff game at FedEx Field last year. It was the Packers versus the Skins. And there was no bloodline, common bloodline that uh, kept things friendly between people. Matter of fact, the only thing in common most of these people had was that there was copious amounts of alcohol in their blood system. And they said some of the most, let's just be serious, obscene things, not just to the players on the field, but to the people in the stands in other jerseys. And Steph was just sitting there like, this is crazy. And that was just the first quarter. And there's a guy sitting behind us. He was wearing a, a Packers jersey. And he had probably four friends with him. They weren't Packers fans. They were wearing jerseys of other teams, but they were there with him. Then about four rows back, there were three or four guys intoxicated. And maybe it was from, like, their vantage point four rows up. Maybe it was the alcohol. They didn't uh, maybe see how large this man was that was wearing the Packers uniform. And finally, in about the, the third or fourth quarter, he had had enough. And he got up as they berated him and, 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 and shouted at him. And he turned around, and I don't know what they thought as they saw that this man was built like Thor. But it took all four of his friends to hold him back. And it's funny because Steph has this motherly instinct. It's why she's going to be a great mother. As they're trying to hold him back, she's like, oh, let me hold your drinks for you, right? All, all their beers. She, she grabs them and puts them down. And I was like, why? And she was like, I just didn't want them to spill their beer on me, right? 
That was the experience last year at FedEx Field. And you might shake your head and say, oh, that's just silly football fans. But there's a psychology to sports. There's a psychology to sporting events. And in life, we're all sucked into these us versus them groupings. It flows from this instinct for survival over humanity's history because there's, there's protection in groups. There's pooled resources in groups. There's satisfaction in this deep need we all have to belong within groups. But there's also downsides to groups because simply acting as a member of a group changes the way you treat others. Your thoughts, your feelings, your behavior towards other changes when it goes from me and you to us and them. Think about it. We'll apply adjectives and names to groups of them that are kind of nebulous that we would never apply to him or her or even more personal, you. But people have a more aggressive template for group-on-group -group interactions than one-on-one. -on -one. The gloves come off and decency follows and in biblical terms, grace goes out the window. And you think about the groups we get swept up in. I was born in 84, so I was mostly a 90s baby, right? Raised in the 90s. So I think about some of the groups I was swept up in. Like there, there was either you were with Star Wars or you were with Star Trek. Team Star Wars or Team Star Trek. How many of you guys grew up on Star Wars? How many of you guys grew up instead on Star Trek? How many of you are like, man, my household was big enough for both. I watched both for crying out loud, right? I grew up on Star Wars every day. What do you want to watch? Star Wars. What do you want to watch? Star Wars. Other groupings. I collected comics. It was Team Marvel and Team DC. Comics don't, aren't worth much anymore, but now there's the movies. Where some people are like, ah, I'm on, I'm on Marvel. Some others, I'm with, I'm with DC. And some people are, again, like, can I just enjoy both? <laughs> but then there was also, you think, uh, Sega and Nintendo. Back in my day, it was literally Sega Genesis and maybe Super Nintendo. And, and that would determine whose house I went to. Jacob had Nintendo, Steve had Sega, and then Jonathan had both. So I was like, well, I'm going to go to this guy's house or that guy's house, depending on what I wanted to play that day. But it was, it was cool to be one or the other. Nowadays, it's what? I don't even game anymore. PlayStation and Xbox, one or the other, because my family didn't have money for all that. So that was why I went to friends' houses to play. But it's funny because we grow up, we become adults, and there's still these us versus them groupings. Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative, red and blue, black and white, blue lives, black lives, and all lives. Consistent patterns of us versus them in race, politics, and even policy, where often the gloves come off and grace goes out the window, even in the church. And in its most escalated cases, it can lead to conflicts, it can lead to crusades, it can even lead to war. You know, World War I, there was a legit beef between us and them, the allies and the central powers. It was one of the deadliest conflicts in history. More than 38 million Soldiers and civilians died in this four-year span of World War I. And it was largely due to something called trench warfare. Now, trench warfare wasn't in the cards for either side when the war started. But at that time, offensive weapons were so primitive compared to the defensive weapons that protected position to the point where people just gave into their instinct and started digging downward. So these hands, right, these human hands that have built cathedrals, that have built monuments, they clawed into dirt, scarring the earth and building this home for death over those four years of conflict in the trenches. And the result was static slaughter. War became battling over this bleak, cratered earth that people called no man's land. So after those four years, though, the war ended. 
and, and the central powers surrendered, and there was the Treaty of Versailles. Well, this treaty was so punitive and punishing that it all but created this desperate culture in Germany that was fertile ground for the Nazis to rise to power. And it almost set the stage for World War II. And, and we're going somewhere with this history lesson. But in World War II, you see the story of Desmond Doss, this movie Hacksaw Ridge. How many of you guys have seen it? I'll get your reviews after service. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. But the story is powerful. Because Desmond Doss, who was in the middle of the Pacific conflict in World War II, he refused to bear arms. Rather, he focused on saving the lives of as many people as possible. You know, it's a powerful reminder to us as believers because we wake up every day in the middle of a spiritual conflict, whether we like it or not. Ephesians 6 reminds us that, hey, you're in the middle of a conflict, but we battle not against flesh and blood. We don't fight as the world does. We don't fight to execute and to execute judgment. We don't fight from trench to trench over some no man's land, but God asks us to step over no man's land, over all the lines in the sand that our culture would draw and to love them to love our enemies. You know, John 3.16 is, is a powerful verse that gets all the publicity. You know, somebody was probably holding a John 3.16 sign at that Skins and Packers game or maybe even the Skins and Cowboys game on Sunday or, excuse me, Thursday. But John 3.17 is equally powerful. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God didn't send Jesus on Christmas to execute and execute judgment, but to see people saved through the blood of Christ. Oh, he's going to come back and do that. You know, in Greek, the word we translate condemn, it means to separate. And in the case of Jesus, he's going to separate good from evil. He's going to punish evil, and he's going to save the good. But you know, the Israelites, at the time Jesus came, they were living with a healthy, a healthy dose of us and them. At that time, it was Jew and Gentile. Jews who were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Gentiles were everybody who wasn't Jewish. And at the time Jesus came, the common belief was that this Old Testament Messiah, he would come and he would wipe out the Gentiles. This was common uh, teaching based on the Old Testament at that time. It's possible that Nicodemus, who Jesus was talking to in John 3, had himself learned this and taught this, that the Messiah was going to raise the Israelites back to power by just eliminating the Gentiles. Not to save, but to condemn them. But Jesus declares in John 3 the supremacy of love and grace. That he didn't come to condemn, he came to save. He didn't come to eliminate, but to show grace. He didn't come to separate, but to unify. You know, the first use of a, of a flamethrower was by the Germans in World War I when they were attacking trenches. By World War II, people had developed napalm that would just penetrate and saturate these trenches and these bunkers until finally at the Geneva Convention, it was, it was condemned and it was, uh, it was eliminated for causing unnecessary suffering. Yet in the Gospels, in Luke 9, where I want to spend some time tonight, in Luke 9, verses 51 through 56, it's almost as if the disciples asked to drop napalm from heaven onto a town. You might ask, how? You might ask why. So we're going to read it right now. It's in Luke 9, verses 51 through 56. It says, as the time drew near for him, Jesus, to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. 
But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. Again, when you read that phrase from the disciples, it seems so abrupt. seems so out of line. But then that small phrase, Samaritan town, it's telling. Because this scene is steeped in race and segregation and cultural division. You know, we talked about how there was this divide between Jews and Gentiles, this us and them. So how did the Samaritans factor in? Well, the Samaritans were those of Jewish descent who were left behind when some but not all of the Jews were taken into Assyrian captivity in the 700s B.C. You see it play out in the Old Testament, both in its history and with its prophets. And the Assyrians brought in Gentile colonists to resettle the land. So they intermarried with the remaining Jews, and they had mixed families and mixed religion and had a mixed race that became known as the Samaritans. And when the Jews came back from captivity, they detested these people with their mixed race and their mixed religion, and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with them, to the point where if the Maps app said this is like 30 minutes faster, they'd be like, no, I'm going to go around because I don't even want to get the dust they walk on on my feet. They lived incredibly segregated lives. And that bitterness did nothing but harden for over five centuries. So when you see the disciples say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? It seems drastic, but then you realize the script they're operating from of them against them. Us and the Gentiles over here. This aggressive template of racial group versus racial group. And Jesus rebukes them. One translation, he says, of course not. And not only, it's powerful, not only did he rebuke them in this moment, but later in the Gospels, he would tell them of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And with his parting words in the book of Acts chapter 1, he said of the Holy Spirit, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and where? In Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, oh, I'm going to send fire all right, but I'm not sending you with missiles. I'm sending you to reconcile. Fire will fall. I'm going to send fire from heaven, but it's so you can be a witness to Samaria. It's not going to be for warfare. It's going to be for your witness so that all can saved and none can be perished. So that through the cross, every tribe, every tongue, every race can be unified under the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit came to shatter this racial divide that isn't new in America. This isn't new to God. It's been playing out through all of history. Predominant cultures and other races, and other creeds. And you may see a small footnote on verse 54 of Luke 9. Some Bibles do. I know I've got the New Living Translation here, and it's got a little asterisk. And then on the bottom of the page, it says, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? And then it says on the bottom of the page, as Elijah did. So it wasn't far from this geographic location that the disciples were standing in, that Elijah had confronted the political powers of Israel and the prophets of Baal, calling the people to repentance and calling down fire from heaven. This scene was steeped not just in race, but in God's prophets confronting political powers. And it's almost like they used this to justify calling down fire on them. You can imagine Jesus' screw face when they're like, should we call down fire on this village and wipe it off the face of the earth? And he's probably like... Are you serious? But this was the disciples saying, hey, Elijah did it. Can we, can we just do it like Elijah did? He called down fire from heaven. Why can't we? And you look at the Old Testament. You look at Moses and Pharaoh. You look at Elijah and Ahab. New Testament, you see John the Baptist and, and Herod. 
we recall pictures of God's mouthpiece, his mouthpieces, that's a, the proper plural, <laughs> confronting the godless leaders of their day, putting them, those people, in their place. So often we do the same. We shout, we shake our fist, we name call, we demonize, we insult, we rage. And I think some of us, if we could, would try to call down fire from heaven. You know, in the 90s, it was, it was Bill Clinton who was running for office. And the author, Philip Yancey, he wrote an article for Christianity, to, Christianity Today about Bill Clinton. And, of course, he didn't title the article. The editors did. So he writes the article, and then the editors titled it, Why Clinton Isn't the Antichrist. <laughs> Reportedly, when Al Gore read the title, he said, hey, Bill, you, you've got to start somewhere. And Clinton would would say to Yancey in a, in a later conversation, he said, I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility, but I was unprepared for the hatred I got from Christians. Why do Christians hate so much? You know, the polarization of politics, the us versus them of politics, it hasn't changed much from the 90s, and the church still all too often gets caught up in it. In the political realm, we so quickly lose our grip on grace. We operate ungracefully. We lose our witness sometimes. We lose our very friends, and people are left asking, why do Christians hate so much? You know, where people who thought different from Jesus, who looked different from Jesus, believed different from Jesus, probably would have voted different from Jesus, were drawn to Jesus. Somehow the church has developed this, this reverse magnetism that pushes those kind of people away. And it's because we've lost our grip on grace. You know, slogans and bumper stickers are all the rage during political seasons, and Make America Great Again is the one that carried Trump all the way to the White House. What should our chief focus as the church be, though? It should be to show America grace again, where we've operated out of ungrace, insulting, name-calling, and all-out raging. Let's return to the weapons of grace. We don't use the same weapons as the world. We don't fight the same battles. We're called to love them. You may look different than me. You may think different than me. You may vote different than me. You might not even like me, but I'm called to show you grace because when I lose grace, I've lost my witness. Without grace, we settle into disunity even in the church. And at that point, it doesn't matter who, president, who the president is because God's not going to bless disunity. He won't. Ultimately, we aren't going to be known by our political correctness, but by our love. You know, being right isn't a fruit of the spirit, but kindness and gentleness is. Jesus never let race or politics get in the way of his encounters with people. Samaritan woman, Roman centurion, backwoods prophet, tax collectors, religious Pharisees, he engaged them all not to condemn or separate, not to draw lines in the sand, but to save and unify. You know, a bumper sticker that Bill Clinton saw in the 90s that hit him hard was one that read, a vote for Bill Clinton is a sin against God. You know, two decades later, I've seen similar quotes on social media, ironically from people on both sides for both candidates. But what's problematic when you put God on a ticket with a candidate is no matter who you put him on with, it's divisive and it breeds division. And I can understand why. Because we have been and we are charged up on very important social issues that will shape our country. It'll shape the country for the next generations to come. But I feel like all too often we envision our role like the disciples in Luke 9 as Elijah, confronting those people, putting them in our place, and calling down fire from heaven if need be. But we also ought to remember a scene at the beginning of Joshua. It's in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here's Joshua. 
called to lead the people who God says are my people. Called to lead them into the promised land that he has promised to them. So by all means, it seems like God is on their side. If ever there was a time that God would say, these are my folks and I've got their back, it would be then. And God tells Joshua again and again to be strong and courageous, be bold and courageous. So Joshua, before attacking Jericho, he's out doing reconnaissance and he's praying and and he's just seeing it all out. And he comes across a man with a sword in his hand. So Joshua, like the boss that he is, he says, hey, are you friend or foe? Are you with me or against me? Are you with us or are you with them? And this figure, who many theologians interpret as God appearing to Joshua, says, neither. Neither. He says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. He's saying, I operate on another level. I'm the ultimate independent. I run things. And the real question was the one that God was presenting to Joshua. Are you with me? And again, Joshua, because he's a wise man, he did the one thing that we all should do in God's presence. He falls down and he worships. He falls on his face and he says, I'm at your command. What do you want your servant to do? You know, that's the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ. What's our call? Our call is the great commission. Not destruction, not division, but to make disciples. Our commands from the commander of the Lord's army were given by Jesus. The two greatest commands, love God and love people. Not warfare, but witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, we read in Luke chapter 9, the beginning of this passage. In verse 51, it says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Why was he headed there? To give himself. For who? For his enemies. And who were his enemies? All of us. You, me, us, them. Because all have sinned. And sin isn't just this this cute concept that we talk about in church. It's rebellion against the king of kings. It is, in its essence, rebellion against his reign. Sin at its core declares war. Sin created a no man's land between us and God. And Jesus crossed no man's land to save his enemy. It says in Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 10. It says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were God's enemies. Those four words, it's a powerful thought. And sin was no man's land, and and Christ bridged that gap. Jesus, again and again, he takes the patterns of our culture, the instincts of our flesh, the patterns of our flesh, and he flips them on its head. Because, again, our instinct in divisive moments is to dig in, to be entrenched, to embrace the perspective that we so often fall into of us versus them. But, again, Jesus flipped that on its head. The new pattern he gives us is us for them. Better yet, for Jesus, it was me for you. Because if you were the only sinner on earth, Jesus would have come and died just for you. So how do we begin to show America grace again? We embrace this perspective of us for them, me for you. Giving and serving and loving and listening. That's how we maximize our impact. And if you look at the election results and numbers, you don't understand how they could have voted differently. You don't understand how they are happy or how they are weeping. Then guess what? There's work to be done. 
Know that God doesn't ask for us to judge whether they should be weeping or whether they should be happy. Your compassion is not supposed to be contingent on whether you think they're right in feeling that emotion. God actually says in Romans 12, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other and don't think you know it all. It's hard to live in harmony and unity in those moments we think we know it all. But we have no idea what they in this us and them are walking through. So buy them a coffee. Make a friend. Cross that worldly line of us and them and establish relationships of me and you. It's the only way we're going to fight through division and find unity. But unity, we've talked in Suffolk just briefly about three things it's going to require from us. The first is reflecting on our perspective, our life experience. It's, it's unique for every one of us. But we all have blind spots. And we won't overcome blind spots with people who share our perspective. So step two is we need to consider another's perspective, other life experiences, seeking the understanding that fuels empathy and it fuels unity. But at its core, above all else, not just reflecting on our perspective and considering another's perspective, we have to adopt the perspective of Jesus. That says, again, not us versus them, but us for them, me for you. You know, there's a brilliant pastor and theologian named Tony Evans who spent most of his life in ministry on this subject of unity. And there's this, this word he introduces that I, I was an English and art major. I, I wasn't up on the science stuff, but he drops this word emulsification. Anybody know what emulsification is? Well, I'll, I'll break it down for you. And hearing him tell it is hilarious because this man loves sandwiches. How many of you guys have made some leftover Thanksgiving sandwiches with the turkey, the stuffing, the sweet potatoes, the gravy, the cranberries? So all of it just piled up, right? Because that's, that's what you do. How many of you guys have put mayonnaise on it? Not a lot of mayonnaise fans in here. Tony Evans would, would be friends with you, though, because Tony Evans, he loves him some mayonnaise. That's why he gets into this subject of emulsification. He goes somewhere with it, right? Because in mayonnaise, in its ingredients, there's oil and water. Oil and water don't go together. They don't mix. So it takes emulsification. Now what emulsification is, is it's introducing another object that can relate to the objects that don't connect in order to bring them together and hold them together to create something new. So the emulsifier in mayonnaise is eggs. You know, the blood of Jesus Christ is the emulsification that pulls people together of different backgrounds, genetics, ethnicity, life experiences. But if you abandon the eggs, you won't get mayonnaise. If you abandon the cross, you won't get unity. Again, we opened with Ephesians 2, verse 16, where it says, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. If our hostility has been put to death, then we need to step out of our trenches and replace, as Jesus did, hostility with grace. And truly show, as the church, show America grace again. But if I could have the worship team come up, I want to read a story. I want to get some practical steps, and then I want to worship. We're going to sing It Is Well. But in World War I, again, people had settled into these trenches. You had Englishmen on one side, Germans on the other, or as they called it, Tommies and Saxons. <laughs> this is a letter from one Saxon named Henry Williamson. He wrote home to his mother. This was in 1914. He says, Dear Mother, I'm writing you from the trenches. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary, and in the pipe is tobacco. 
Of course, you say. But wait, in the pipe is German tobacco. Aha, you say, from a prisoner or found in a captured trench. Oh, dear, no. It's from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day Christmas Day and as I write. Marvelous, isn't it? It happened thus wise. It's a word we don't use often anymore. On Christmas Eve, both armies sang carols and cheered, and there was very little firing. The Germans, in some places just 80 yards away, called to our men to come and fetch a cigar. And our men told them, come to us. This went on for some time, neither fully trusting the other, until after much promising to play the game, a bold Tommy crept out and stood between the trenches. And immediately a Saxon came to meet him. They shook hands and laughed, and then 16 Germans came out. Thus, the ice was broken. You know, that was a, a temporary ceasefire in one of the biggest conflicts in human history on the basis of Christmas. The birth of Jesus, Christ entering into the picture. Come not to separate, not to condemn, but to save. He emulsified, if I can use that word, opponents in one of the greatest conflicts in human history. But we are, as, as his followers, are called to a permanent ceasefire. To break the ice, as he said, but with grace. Again, to flip us versus them to us for them. And if I can just share three practical steps tonight, because I always like to think, man, how's this going to change how we live next week? How's this going to change what I do next week? Here's three practical steps. The first is simply skip target practice. You know, your neighbor doesn't want you to see them as a target group, and people aren't projects. I live at Starbucks. It's the office away from the office. The drive from my house to all the way in Newport News, it's lengthy. So Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm always in Starbucks. There's one less than a mile from my house. By the time I get to the register to pay for my drink, they've already got it ready, right? They all know me. And there's other people that spend a whole lot of time in Starbucks, and I've gotten to know them and had conversations with them. And my first impulse is always, do you know Jesus? Come out to church. Give them a card. But, you know, the more I talk to people, the more I realize these are people God's calling me to love genuinely to listen to intently and sometimes you simply need to spark the conversation break the ice and see where it goes you never know what will come of it there was a guy at starbucks who goes by randy he's got white hair dark skin wears a bunch of gold chains and i didn't know where he was from but i had multiple conversations with him and then lastly about the third or fourth conversation we talked for 45 minutes not only is he a man of deep faith this guy quoted probably half the psalms to me in 45 minutes but he immigrated from India at age 28 some years ago. He's probably in his 60s now. But my wife and I were adopting from India. And it was just powerful to talk to him. Not only was I saying Shivraj wrong, it's Shivraj, right, the name of our son. But I just realized the gift he's going to be to my family. And sometimes we simply need to ditch the savior complex, ditch target practice, and realize sometimes God builds bridges because the unity that he seeks is going to bless us. It's going to broaden our perspective, our life view, the lens we see the world from. So again, we can ditch the Savior complex. We're not saving anybody. Jesus is. Sometimes we simply need to build the bridge and the Holy Spirit walks right over it. Genuinely love some people. You don't know, you don't know how God's going to use that. But secondly, be a lifelong learner. You know, I've been asking this guy all these questions about his Indian-American experience. Why? Because as a white male that's grown up in the mid-Atlantic, I know nothing 
about the Indian American experience. But you know other experiences and perspectives I lack? The police officer that wakes up every morning to serve and protect. The black man who wakes up to provide for his family in a country where he's a minority. You know, every relationship I spark with another person of a different life experience is a gift to me. Because my perspective might not even be wrong, but it needs to be broadened. To see the world with a bigger lens. You know, I've shared in Suffolk that one of the the tendencies of our sinful nature is to judge everything, everything we see, everything we witness from our lens, from our perspective, and hold that up as chief. When, when again, these relationships we spark, the learning we spark in those relationships, those other experiences, those other perspectives, those can be a gift to us. That grows sympathy, that grows empathy, and that grows unity. And it's funny because when we started this series, I started talking about trench warfare. I started thinking about this book I read I think it was in high school, and I had read since. It's called All Quiet on the Western Front. So I read that over a weekend, and it's this incredible fiction written by somebody who himself survived the trenches and the inhumanity of World War I, and there's a passage that's telling. It's a chapter about the prisoners of war that they shared camp with, men who the very previous day, in some cases, they'd been firing at each other's heads in these trenches, and yet he sees them on the other side of this fence, and the narrator says, he says, I know nothing of them, except that they are prisoners. And that is exactly what troubles me. Their life is obscure. If I could know more of them, what their names are, how they live, what they are waiting for, what their burdens are, then my emotion would have an object and might become sympathy. But a word of command has made these silent figures our enemies. And a word of command might transform them into friends. It's a powerful passage. We have to realize that we have that second word of command. One of the greatest two commands, love our neighbor as Christ loved us. One way he demonstrated that is while we were still enemies. He didn't agree with us. He didn't agree with the way we were living. He still loved us to the point his compassion was so strong he went to the cross for us. And like the passage we just read, if, if you know nothing of them in all these groupings of us versus them, that is exactly what should trouble you. Because you, like, you might be living your life along the lines of us and them that our culture has defined and not by God's commands. One such command is found in the book of James. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's one way you become a lifelong learner. It's one of the, what is it, seven habits of highly affected people. They just borrow from the Bible. <laughs> seek to understand, then seek to be understood, right? But let's learn. And then lastly, if we could all stand. We're going to go into worship, but the, but the third point that we can all go home with is we have to remember to refill our tank with grace, because we're all human. We slip from graceful to ungraceful. My wife's not here, thank goodness, because you could ask her. She would say, yeah, sometimes his grace tank, it runs out, and I need to refill my grace tank way more often than I refill the tank on my car. Hopefully, you can feel me on that, but it's especially imperative at a time when, when our whole culture seems to be crying wolf, and, and everything's a crisis. Empathy can so quickly turn to apathy. You become numb to everything. And again, you run out of grace for people. I was talking to somebody weeks ago during the election process, and he, was, he said those words, I'm just running out of grace for people. And I was like, hey, me too. I've been there. Man, one of the most practical steps, let me just be honest, get the heck off Facebook for a while. <laughs> That'll refresh your mind. But have somebody you can vent to, somebody you can talk to, 
empathize with, maybe even get a deeper understanding of everything that's going on. But lastly, most importantly, take your tank to God. Reflect again on Jesus and what he did in his perspective. Not just us for them, but me for you. Each person that we struggle to have grace for, each person we struggle to have compassion for, Jesus had so much that he died for them. Let's find the capacity to show compassion again. Let's show America grace again, but let's even now in this time of worship, we're gonna sing it as well. Some of you guys know no matter what happens in the world, God is on his throne and it is well. The one who could say to a storm, hey, peace be still. He rides with us in the boat. You know, fear might arise in the boat from time to time, but we need to remember who's there with us. So we're going to sing it as well. But let's refill our tanks with the grace that only he provides, the perspective that only his word provides. And let's worship him tonight. Let's praise Jesus.
about the ministry of reconciliation. I just want to read 2 Corinthians 5, it's 18 through 21 real quick, where it says, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, and God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now this verse tells us two things that I want to share briefly, that we've all been given this ministry of sharing what we know, the hope we have, this, this good news of reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And for some of us, if you're like me, I'm introverted. When I go to Starbucks, I'm not looking to have a conversation. I'm looking to throw my headsets on and read and study for like six hours and not talk to anybody, right? That's how I'm wired. So for me to step into moments where I'm sharing my faith, I have to, like Joshua, remember, God said again and again and again, be strong and courageous. But he's not going to call you anywhere where he's not going to be with you. He's not going to send you into a conversation where the Holy Spirit is not going to be in you. So I just want to encourage you again that we all have this calling. The grace God gives us doesn't just cover us, but it calls us to be ministers of reconciliation. But then secondly, we're always going to get horizontal reconciliation wrong until we get vertical reconciliation with God first first and foremost. So tonight, if you're here and, and you've never been reconciled to God, you've never said be king over my life, I want you to step over no man's land and save me through the blood of Christ. Then come on, we're going to close. We're going to tear down, but I'm going to be down there in about 10 seconds and I'd love to pray for you. Whether you've never been reconciled to God or you have a relationship with God, but you just know in this vertical relationship with God, there's, there's clouds, maybe there's idols, there's habits, there's things that have simply gotten in the way that you want to leave here tonight, then I would love to pray for you. But first, let me pray for everybody. Lord God, we thank you. God, as we sang in one of these worship songs earlier, Lord God, that, that we look to the hills where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the, the maker of heaven and earth. God, we thank you that race and politics and privilege or racism or any of these things, Lord God, they're not new to you. You've been dealing with them since Cain and Abel. God, and you've always had an answer, and that answer has been Jesus Christ. God, and we again, we worship you tonight. God, we want to embrace the, not just the words you've given us, but the calling you've given us to be ministers of reconciliation, to be salt, to be light, to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. Jesus, you've done so much for us. God, I just pray that you would make it a fire in our bones that we can't contain, Lord God. That we'd have no, no impulse other than to share it. God, but help us to genuinely love people. Help us to genuinely listen to people, genuinely care. You know, in the book of Mark, Jesus asks over 50 questions, not because he had to, because he knew all things, but he was modeling for us, man, be, be slow to speak, quick to listen, seek to understand. God, give us hearts that truly break for people. Not projects, God, not, not target groups, Lord God, but people you died on the cross for. God, help us to see the unity you want in this church, in our neighborhoods, in this region, God, because it's through that that you're going to have your greatest witness. And we're going to see people come to Jesus Christ. As we lift you up in unity, you're going to draw all people, God. We thank you for that. 
pray you bless us and keep us in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. So we are going to break, but we've got some time. And I'm going to be right down here. If you need prayer for anything, I'm going to be right there. We'll see you all next week. Somebody waits for you Kiss her once for me